Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. We're going to begin with a story that made headlines not only in Canada, but uh, internationally this week. And it has to do with the co-founder of Pig Save Toronto. And uh, let's talk to Anita and talk to Emily Lavender. She's uh, with PETA Canada, People for the Ethical Treatment of, uh, of Animals. Um, Anita, I keep blowing the pronunciation of your last name, so I'm not going to try it. What, what, how do I do this properly? What's the proper pronunci- pronunciation of your last name? Uh, it rhymes with Heinz. Ketchup, Kreitz. Kreitz. Yes. I think you told me that last time. <laughs> I, yes. I, congratulations on uh, on your victory in court. Thank you. I'm relieved. I'm very happy. Did you have a sense that it was going to turn out this way for you? I I did, and um, but you never know with with the courts, right? Um, so I you know I am relieved. I feel different now. I guess there was a bit of a weight on my shoulders, and I'm happy that compassion is not a crime. And uh, giving water to thirsty pigs uh, is the right thing to do. What did the judge say? Well, the judge, I, I, I sort of, uh, he, he, I was disappointed in part of the ruling. For example, he said pigs are property in Canadian law, but then he said that dogs and cats are as well. And what that suggests is that the legal system has to catch up with our morals. And he had, had suggested that earlier. He said the law moves slowly. And... You know, you mentioned Sonny, and I, you know, I want to mention my my friend, Mr. Bean, and he's the other co-founder of Toronto Pig Safe, because when I adopted him from Project Jesse of Animal Lines of Canada, I started walking on Lakeshore, and that's when I saw the trucks with the, the pigs being transported to a downtown Toronto slaughterhouse. So, mm. you know, dogs are part of our family, and, you know, when I saw the pigs looking out of those portholes, they're no different. I mean, they have the same kind of feelings, and... The pig trial went over those kinds of issues. And, you know, I was hoping that the judge would have taken into account the experts that we had, like, like Dr. Lori Marino, who said, scientifically, pigs are persons in the sense that they're self-aware, they're autonomous, they have sentience, you know, they have, they have feelings of pleasure and pain, they have complex personalities. Um, so under, that, under, those, under the definition of personhood, Pigs are persons and not property. Well, I mean, there was an argument about that in court in the United States. It had to do, I think, with uh, with, with either chimpanzees yes. or orangutans. I'm not sure which one it was, but it, it but was chimps. Was it chimps? And they were trying to yes. establish whether or not they were sentient beings. And I don't know whether they've come to a conclusion in that court case yet or, or, yet or not. Yeah. So, Doctor or Professor Stephen Weiss, he uh, started the um, non-human rights project, and he's trying to establish personhood for the great apes and cetaceans. And he's, he's been promoting this, he's been working on cases around the world. And um, he has used uh, cu- customary law to make his case. You know, there are a lot of people who would feel more than likely, and I'm sure you've run into this, there are lots of people who would feel that what you did by offering water to the pigs was not a not an act that should have gotten you into taken you into court, but at the same time, uh, the, these very same people, and I may be one of them, will question you on on just how far you think pigs' rights go and pigs, um, uh, yeah, I guess pigs' rights uh, go and animal rights go. I I love my little buddies, believe me, and we've talked about this in the past, but I don't know that people will will agree with you that they are sentient beings and have the same rights as, as humans. 
Well, they may. They may. You know what? Most people may. I don't know. We'll find out. Okay. Well, I think one way to look at it is uh, everyone has interests. Um, you have an interest in having water, having basic basic rights, like uh, having enough shelter, having food. Uh, no. You have an interest in not being confined, in not being tortured and not being executed. Right. So, you know, human rights law took a while to develop. There was a time when those human rights did not exist. But there are basic rights that we can all agree on, like... Uh, and and for but the thing is, you know, humans are just one animal species. There are other species on this planet we share share this planet with. And, and you know, I think it's it, it, animal rights is, is, is inevitable. I, in no, time, I, you know, I, I don't disagree that animals have rights. Yeah. I don't disagree with that. It's how, it's what rights and how far the rights of animals go. That's going to be the debate. The debate question, or maybe people will just say what she did is not correct, but what she's advocating is also not correct. Um, I think you know there's there are more and more people who are joining the animal rights movement. I mean, I was a meat eater, and I I just wasn't aware. Mm-hmm. And then I watched the film, and I, I became aware. And then my mother was like laughed at me for ten years. She thought I was crazy for mm-hmm. being a vegan. And then she went vegetarian. Then she went vegan. And you know, I came. You know, parents came from the former Yugoslavia and. Uh, my sister's vegan now, and just like people change, cultures change. I was because this case went global. Like I was interviewed this morning by the largest Slovenian paper, and they've heard of this case. And there's just there's a lot of support, and 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 the, the move, the group Toronto Pig Safe has started something that's very simple. Like it's the idea of bearing witness, the idea of being present in, at a site of injustice, such as the slaughterhouse, which is a very violent place for animals, and and looking them in the eyes and seeing the fear in their eyes. And this idea is so simple that it's spread. So there are 150 groups now. You know, so Charge Fix Day started in 2010. Um, now it's grown in, in Europe. There's like almost 40 groups in the, U, in the UK. There's two groups in Sweden and Netherlands. There's a group in Hong Kong that started this year by a young artist. And at her first vigil, she gave water to thirsty pigs. In a, yeah, you may, you, this may tr- prove to be a watershed moment, this, uh, this trial of yours. I don't know. It may prove to be, eventually, we may look back at uh, um, what what you experienced, Anita, and it may prove to be something that, you know, most people today would not think it would be possible. Now, we're speaking with uh, Anita Kreins of uh, Pig Save Toronto, co-founder, who was found not guilty of mischief, a mischief charge, tossing, uh, was tossed out, and... Uh, she had. Did you did you give them water to, to to drink, or did you just spray them with water? I gave them water to drink. Okay. And, and how we long? We do this at our weekly vigil, so we do this every week okay. in the summer's heat. Okay. Emily uh, Lavender is with us as well. By the way, the the word is that uh, Marine Le Pen has conceded defeat in the French presidential election, and she's made a concession phone call to Emmanuel Macron. So. Emmanuel Macron is going to be the next president of France. Emily Lavender of Peter Canada is with us. Emily, thank you for taking the time. Where does the where does where does Anita's case and argument fit into the whole issue as far as Peter's concerned and animal rights is concerned? Well, I think that uh, Anita's kindness has inspired people all over the world to put down their pork chops and see that there are animals. Um, with personalities and a will to live, um, these pigs, you know, form families and friendships if given the chance. They feel love and joy, but also pain and fear. And 
um, Anita put herself in their place and made the compassionate choice to offer water to these thirsty pigs. And I mean, each and every one of us can, um, you know, choose kindness every time we sit down for a meal by simply leaving animals off our plate. So what do you think, what um, do you think, what do you think of people who have bacon first thing in the morning? Um, well, I mean, I used to be a huge meat eater. Uh, bacon was one of my favorite things. And um, I think it's it's opening our eyes. Most people are against cruelty to animals. Um, but I think most people have no idea um, how they um, suffer in farms, during transport, and at the slaughterhouse. And this case is helping to open people's eyes and see that um, I mean, specifically for the transport, um, I mean, there's 700 million farm animals transported every year in Canada. Right, right. The CFIA admits that 14 million animals per year may be suffering during transport, uh, with over one and a half million arriving at the slaughterhouse. Okay, I, I can appreciate so, that. I, I just don't have a lot of time to go through statistical evidence. We can talk about that another day. But, uh, Anita, what happens going forward? Will you'll be doing the same thing in 2017 in the summertime? And one of the things the industry is concerned about is that animal rights activists may escalate now. Is that is that something that you have planned, maybe? Yes, I, I mean... We, I, our group promotes the idea that everyone has a duty to bear witness. So when you see a dog or a pig or a person or a bird suffering, um, don't say like, oh, it's too hard, I don't want to look, but come close, as close as you can, and try to help. That's the definition of bearing witness. And what I really wanted this trial to achieve is to raise people's awareness about that they can do something, just mm-hmm. like Emily said, like whether it's, you know, when you're sitting down to eat, but, but more, more than that, I don't want people just to be vegan and, you know, I want people to actually act. I want people to know they have so much power to just like do the right thing in their own community. If there's a slaughterhouse. Well, what rights, what rights, what rights does the, what do, what rights does the pig owner have? What rights does the company have? Uh, well, I would want them. I, I have nothing against truckers or factory farmers, right. except the idea that we would all benefit if we move towards a plant-based food economy, all of us. And, and you know, there are superbugs associated with factory farming. There's, uh, you know, there's cancer associated with eating bacon. Well, we, uh, may, we, may, we may eventually get there, and I, 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 I thank you for joining me today. We'll talk another time. We'll talk more about this. But I'm going to let you go now because I want to take some phone calls as well. But you've, you've won the court case. We've talked to you before the court case, after the court case, and I have a feeling we'll be talking again. Always a pleasure talking to you. And thank you, Anita. And, and Emily, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, uh, there's Anita Kreitz from Pig Save Toronto and Emily Lavender from PETA Canada. Been talking a lot over the last few weeks, and particularly yesterday, we had a conversation about um, with Dr. Christian Luprecht about the French presidential election, Emmanuel Macron, uh, versus Marine Le Pen, and uh, how is this going to be turning out? It would either way. It meant a significant. Uh, it would have a significant impact on on Europe, and if it was going to be Le Pen, then it would be far more uh, troublesome to the European Union than uh, if Macron won. And it appears that Macron has won, with Marine Le Pen making a concession phone call to the uh, president-elect of France. Jeff Semple is the Global News European. Bureau Chief, and he joins us from Paris. Jeff, thank you very much for the time. Uh, was this a um, 
Was this a, a cut and dried election when it, you know, eventually as the votes were counted today, was it was it a walk a walk away for uh, for Macron? How much do we know? Yeah, well, what we know uh, uh, is at this point is from the exit polls, uh, which were released about 45 minutes ago, and uh, they give Macron, the centrist candidate, a significant lead, about 65% to Marine Le Pen at 35%, pretty wow. close to what the opinion polls had predicted to their credit. Uh, they needed a win, didn't they, after the year they've had, and it appears they got one here, and so did Emmanuel Macron becoming the youngest French president in history at 39 years old. And he's also the first president in more than half a century to be elected not belonging to one of those two major parties here in France, the Republicans and the Socialists, who you'll remember were wiped out in the first round. So Macron sweeping to victory here. He's expected to take the stage and address his fans. We were just down at the election, his election night event in central Paris, just in front of the Louvre, that iconic museum, of course, where a party is well underway here. And people, I think a lot of them, are less excited about him and just relieved that Marine Le Pen didn't win the day. Um, is this now a divided country? Is France divided along urban versus um, uh, rural parts of the country? Was it was it uh, the rural parts of the country that had a greater interest in in, uh, in Le Pen and, uh, and the urban areas a greater interest in, in Macron or, or not that way at all? Yes, no, that's it. It's it is it's a similar story, isn't it? From this, you know the the vote in the United Kingdom yeah. last year for Brexit and for Donald Trump in the United States. Similar theme here. The rural areas outside of the big cities were largely in favor of Marine Le Pen. And in Paris, it's hard to find anyone who supported her, to be honest. And we've been trying for the last few days, although, you know, they are there and they are more outspoken. I mean, a lot of them talking about just a few years ago, anyone in Paris who supported the Front National would keep their head head down and be quiet and almost do it in secret. Um, but now, certainly, it, it is a force to be reckoned with. But you're right. I mean, the urban-rural divide is significant here, and France is viscerally divided. We have seen and heard the protests on both sides, and there is a palpable hatred from the left to the right and the right to the left. And now that daunting task of uniting both sides will fall to Emmanuel Macron, who is a centrist candidate, but it is hard to, and now he'll have to look forward to their parliamentary legislative elections next month, and he will have to try and form a government. And remember, we're talking about a guy who who launched his own political party last year. So now he has to start from scratch to build a government, to build some kind of consensus to move forward. Without a party affiliation, is he going to be able to govern effectively? Well, I think a lot of his critics would say absolutely not. And I think um, to have to to make that work, he's going to have to reach out to the people that he has been doing battle with over the course of this campaign. It's it's hard to imagine. I mean, you know, we keep making the comparisons to the United States, but it would sort of be like, uh, you know, the president without the, the House of Republicans or the Senate. I mean, he's really kind of out on his own here, and he's going to have to find some way to bridge those gaps if he wants to govern effectively. I've heard people say that for Le Pen, it was not more of an issue five years from now, but certainly was a factor that she was considering. She may have been running for uh, 2022 more than she was running for 2017. Any value, any, uh, any value to that point? Yeah, I think that's a fair point, and I think we've heard that from her own supporters, many of whom had already conceded, based on the opinion polls they'd seen, that they were probably going to lose tonight like they have, but they are looking forward to the next time. And, you know, 
there is reason for hope for them, in part because, unlike Brexit, unlike Donald Trump, Marine Le Pen owned the youth vote for the most part in this country, particularly youth who were voting for the first time between the ages of 18 and 24 who, without a university degree. They overwhelmingly supported Marine Le Pen. We've been actually, uh, over the past couple of days, talking to the youth wing of the Front National, and they are absolutely committed to her cause. They are upset about the fact that youth employment in France has been stuck at around 25% for a long time, and they're looking for someone to flip politics in France upside down. They believe she's the one to do it. And so it's hard when you look at the youth momentum for her and her campaign to think that this is something that's going away. Yeah, I know you're pressed for time. This uh, election in France will inevitably have some impact. I don't know how much, but it'll have a certain amount of impact on the British election in a few weeks and certainly on the uh, German election in August. Well, it will insofar, I think, as the, the momentum for the, for the populist candidates in those, in those countries. I mean, I think people in Britain were actually a little bit wary of uh, having to go into the Brexit negotiations with Emmanuel Macron, who was very committed to the European Union. Arguably, it might have been easier for them to negotiate with a woman, Marine Le Pen, who also yeah. wants to get out of the European Union. But you're right. Another key election to watch this year in Europe is coming up this fall in Germany, where Angela Merkel will try and defend her post. She's polling well ahead, just like Emmanuel Macron. And so we are starting to see, like we did in the Netherlands, like we did in Austria, these populist candidates coming, stop, stopping short of taking power, coming in second, uh, sometimes a close second, but second nonetheless. And that is a relief, certainly, to Western leaders, no doubt Justin Trudeau in Canada among them, who are pro-free trade, pro-globalization, and are very wary of these populist leaders who are looking to flip the Western liberal order on its head. Jeff, thank you so much for the time. Good talking to you. Anytime. Thanks, Roy. All the best. Jeff Semple is the uh, European Bureau Chief for Global News, joining us from Paris, where Emmanuel Macron is the incoming president of France. I want to read you a few lines from a Washington Times story from May the 4th, from this past Thursday. An unclassified FBI study on last year's cop killing spree found officers are depolicing amid concerns that anti-police defiance, fueled in part by movements like Black Lives Matter, has become the new norm. Departments and individual officers have increasingly made the decision to stop engaging in proactive policing, said the report by the FBI Office of Partner Engagement. Uh, the report, Assailant Study, Mindsets and Behaviors, said the social justice movement, sparked by the 2014 death of 18-year-old Michael Brown at the hands of an officer in Ferguson, Missouri, quote, made it socially acceptable to challenge and discredit the actions of law enforcement, end quote. And, quote, nearly every police official interviewed agreed that for the first time, law enforcement not only felt that their national political leaders publicly stood against them, but also that politicians' words and actions signified that disrespect to law enforcement was acceptable in the aftermath of the Brown shooting. As a result, law enforcement officials believe that defiance and hostility displayed by assailants toward law enforcement appears to be the new norm. Most of the assailants who used deadly force against officers did so in an effort to avoid being taken into custody, but 28% were motivated by hatred of police and a desire to kill law enforcement, quote-unquote. They go on to say that um, decriminalizing of drugs 
and shorter minimum sentences have also contributed to this anti-policing attitude that exists and is increasing in the United States, maybe in Canada to a certain extent as well. Just a few months ago in Toronto, a mob threatened two police officers. We've heard stories like that before. I want to tell you something. If you think it's might be preferable to not have police around to uh, bother you with speeding tickets or making sure that we essentially comply with the law, you might want to try living in an urban area where their police are not present. And that happened uh, in Montreal when I was about 20 years old. They, uh, there was a police strike and there was um, disagreement with the Quebec government uh, the Montreal police and the Quebec government, the Montreal um, municipal government. And the city became a very dangerous place to be because the lunatics all decided they could do whatever they wanted to do. And there was nobody there to stop them. When eventually the provincial police came in and uh, to a certain extent helped out. But it wasn't pretty. So what's the situation in uh, in Canada? Michael Elliott is the president of the Alberta Federation of Police Associations, and he joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mike, thank you for taking the time. Oh, thank you, Roy. I appreciate that. So now the United States, uh, the, the report says, the FBI report says, that anti-police defiance is the new norm, and uh, they're saying that police are involved now increasingly in depolicing. What's depolicing? Well, Roy, it's uh, ironic you bring up about need policing because it's actually, uh, from my perspective, is an Americanism for politi- uh, police industrial action strategy, or in other words, like a workplace slowdown. And I do not, from a deep policing perspective, I do not see that here in, in Canada, specifically uh, Alberta. But uh, what I do have a relation to, it's, we call it the FIDO syndrome. And FIDO syndrome, we call it like forget it, drive on. And I, I can see that being very similar to what potentially could be occurring in the States, but on a very, very much smaller scale. So we've talked about this phenomenon, this FIDO phenomenon in the past, where police have seen some, or they see something going on that uh, there's maybe a crime in progress or some, something's taking place that the way they would normally be intervening, but they consider what the repercussions might be and they decide it's not worth it. What may happen to us for intervening in this particular situation is not worth our intervening, and so forget it, drive on. We also have the situation in Chicago where a woman police officer, I think 18 years on the force, was being physically assaulted, and she chose not to reach for her gun, where she had every right to do so, because she she was concerned about what would maybe happen to her as far as the, the municipal politicians uh, and maybe beyond municipal politicians uh, are concerned later on if she did protect her own life. That's not a good environment. That's not a good. That's not a good attitude. Not a good. Uh, uh, not a positive way to go to work. If you're afraid, first of all, you're afraid for your life, and you're afraid that you will not be backed up. That's not a good. Uh, good way to start your day. Uh, no, it isn't. And uh, I, I, I truly feel for that officer uh, when she had to go through that uh, horrible incident. Um, but I, I can say, for, for from a Canadian perspective, we have oversight here that helps uh, protect some of our members as well. And to give you give an example, because I know the FBI indicated that that specific um, call you were referring, the officer informed the superintendent the officer chose not to shoot because the officer didn't want his or her family to have to go through the scrutiny the next day in the national news. Now, if 
Today, for example, there was a shooting in Calgary. Uh, we have an independent body called ACER, which is an Alberta Serious Incident Response Team. That's an independent um, body that takes the bias out of investigations. And also, when there's an investigation of such as a shooting, the officer's name is not released to the public. And that's to protect the integrity of the investigation and also to, um, we got to realize that when a member involved in a, a serious incident, the stress that that member has to go through, one, to unfortunately take a, a person's life, but now you've got to, they don't want to go through uh, a public scrutiny and potentially uh, internal and external pressures from media, uh, people on, on Twitter, et cetera, et cetera. So that's something we have to be concerned about here, but I, I don't... I don't see it as being the same phenomenon that is occurring mm. in Canada compared to the United States. Now, I've had people call this program, and they've uh, expressed, particularly when we were talking about police actions that re- resulted in violence in the United States, uh, I've had people call this program and, and, and express real dislike, real dislike for police, police officers individually and collectively. And uh, and we've also, there have been examples, Mike, where at least where I felt that politicians on the municipal level in some provinces, have chosen the path of least resistance. And when a police officer has required backing up by a municipal official, the municipal official hasn't been there to do it. In fact, the municipal official has done exactly the opposite. Yeah, that's and and my personal opinion on that, it comes down to the person's integrity on what doing the right thing for the right reasons. And as a police officer, that's what we're supposed to go by is our integrity. And I challenge all politicians to follow their integrity as well for doing the right things for the right reasons. Mm. And uh, and I also, too, we've got to look at the United States, too, has a different idea. It's like, I, I can look, when this was released, this article was released from the FBI talking about de-policing, uh, one article out of Baltimore just talked about they had 100 homicides at the, by the end of April. And, like, that, that number is staggering. And, and I think about what weapons are available to the average citizen for an American to a, obtain compared to what a Canadian could obtain. So our, our rules and regulations are, are quite are quite different. But one thing I've got to get back to, you talk about the Ferguson effect. I find the influence of social media plays a major, major factor in changing uh, or influencing the ideas and perceptions of police officers. Because as we know, if you state something over and over, perception can become reality. And that's, that's something that we have to be cognizant as police officers and, uh, and members of, of government that we have to be proactive as well. And no longer, I think, are those days gone by. If an incident occurs, you hear the comment, no comment. Because when you have no comment, it allows other people and agencies to go to fill in the blanks for them. So we, we have to be, yes, we have to protect integrity of files and investigations. But we also have to realize that in today's social media and and the thirst for information, we have to help educate and provide the correct information to the public, so they're aware of what's occurring, so they so people don't jump to conclusions. Yeah, when I've talked to police officers in this country, veteran police officers, who've told me they can't wait to get out because of the attitude that seems to be growing. And it's, it's, there's a public attitude. They feel the police are disrespected more and, uh, and, and disregarded more. 
uh, by the public, and they don't, again, feel like they're getting support from their superiors, sometimes even the superiors in the police department. And it worries me when you have a 20-year police veteran who says, I can't wait, or 19-year police veteran says, I can't wait to get out because it's not the kind of environment that I can function in anymore. That's concerning. And Roy, I I have to uh, agree with you there. I know uh, officers that feel that way, and not just the 20-year members. I know members that are in the tenure there as well. Um, I think what it comes down to is that, and you do get that feeling, you don't have the support, not necessarily the public support, but sometimes you get the feeling of the internal support. Yeah. Um, Too often, um, we have, and I'll go on, like we have the recent Jordan decision, right? It indicates um, serious criminal matters must be uh, concluded within 18 months or there's potential that that charge could be dropped. Right. Well, the problem that we have with some members as well, they get into internal uh, police act discipline matters. And I have examples from my hometown here of Edmonton of members waiting nine years for a conclusion of a police act complaint. And if that occurred in a criminal setting, like it would be unheard of. So the, the internal stressors, upon police officer is, is quite uh, prevalent from, from a police act perspective. Yeah, and we've had situations, Mike, where uh, individuals who have been convicted of, or at least uh, maybe not convicted, but they've been waiting uh, on trial, waiting for a trial for second-degree murder, for manslaughter, and because they weren't brought to trial quickly enough, according to the Supreme Court ruling, they walked. Yes, and uh, it's, it's very frustrating, and it, it's well, it's not only frustrating for the police, but it also has to be encouraging for the criminal element. Well, definitely, because I, I think not only are the police officers working hard to uh, conclude and bring somebody to justice for that crime, you've got to look at look at the victims that are also influenced by this. So victims have been going through this for years and years, waiting to get justice on, on their family members, right. only to see uh, a criminal walk. And that, to me, it gets back to, where our, the government has to ensure that the judicial system is taken care of so we can take these people from, from day one, from when a crime occurs, so you go through the full criminal um, trial to ensure we have public confidence and, and, and justice prevails in the end. Yeah. I, uh, I'm going to conclude with this. I doubt that it's only in the United States that FIDO happens. I would imagine that in Canada as well, police officers will look at a situation and they'll decide whether or not it's worth, worth it, not worth, whether, whether, it's, whether it's the smart thing for them to do to intervene. Yeah. It's, um, and, and policing definitely has changed. You talk to a, a 25-year veteran, to somebody who was uh, five years on. Um, today, everybody is out there, whether it's Twitter, with a camera, taking video. So I, I just want to pass off before I conclude that regardless of what occurs, police officers will always be there to protect the, the public. Regardless of what comes out in social media, um, I know I, I work in an environment that's uh, very political, very fluid. It's in the entertainment area of, uh, of the city. And you have to be cognizant right now of what's occurring around you. And uh, I, I do thank you for your time on this. And I wish we had more time to continue. Well, we'll, we'll, talk, about it ag- we'll talk about it again, Mike, I'm sure. I, I was, after that Dallas massacre of the police officers, I was thinking the next day, it must have been very difficult for police officers to go to work. Maybe not even so much because they felt compromised, but because their family members might say to them, don't go anymore. It's time for you to stop. That's Be- true. Out of fear. That, that is, is very true because 
we're, we're so integrated with the United States that regardless of what we do from trade to um, programs, so whatever occurs in the States, it right. may not affect the citizens and police officers in Canada immediately, but it, it, it will happen because we just look at the drug trade. and When drugs occur, you get a new drug introduced to, to society. Right. Generally, for the most time, it occurs in the States and it slowly moves its way, creeps up into Canada. Yep. And I do have concern that the FIDO or deep policing may occur in Canada. I don't think it's there, not now, but I know it is occurring yep. and it's slowly creeping this way. Mike, I thank you for the time. We will speak again. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. Mike Elliott is the president of the Alberta Federation of Police Associations. The police associations represent the street cops, the police officers you come into contact with. I want to just get Tom on the air. Uh, He's a 25-year police officer. Uh, Tom recently retired, right? Yeah, I retired about five years ago. Yes, sir. Thank you for the call. Um... What's going on? Well, I still talk to some of the guys that um, and gals that I used to work with, and morale is at an all-time low. And um, like uh, the officer out west was saying, like a lot of the the officers that have even ten, fifteen years on, they're saying, "I can't wait to get out of here." I don't know. It's pretty sad, really. And is that surprising to you? Not really, because. Um, there's such oversight now. I mean, uh, you're nickel and dimed for everything you do. I mean, the service I worked for, like with the computer technology in the cars, like you go 30 kilometers over the speed limit, and you have to explain why you did. So there was a degree of, I don't want to use the word freedom, but you had options. You had, you had, you had more options as a police officer 20 years ago than you do today. There was less oversight, but then there will be people who will say, well, when they didn't have the oversight today, they took advantage of the liberties, and that's when, that's when society suffered. There will be people who will make that argument, and you know politicians will always hunt for a vote, and if, if, if a vote, I'm not, blaming, I'm not painting everybody with this brush, but if they'll say whatever they have to say to get a vote, some of them. Yeah, some of them do, and they don't, um, So, I guess, when it comes down to it, integrity is everything and standing up for what's right. And, but, and, and, this, is, and this, is the, this is the feeling when you talk to police officers, veteran cops, on the force today, they will tell you they can't wait to get out. That's it, right? They just can't wait. Guys, especially in the 20 years and up, they're just like, I can't wait till this is over because they've had enough. Okay, you're in, you're in Sutton, Ontario, right? That's right. Okay. Uh, let me get Peter. Stay on the line, Tom. Let me bring Peter back, who's in Calgary, 20 years a police officer. Peter, uh, s- say hello to your, uh, your your former colleague. Well, still colleagues, I guess. you. No, no, we wor- still smell like pork. What's that? Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a cop joke. I used that on the radio waves once. That's how liberal I was. Uh, I Somebody called in my position and asked me where I was, and I said, uh, I'm on this location north of this town. They must smell the pork product in the area because there's no traffic. It's a cop joke. Well, I, didn't, I didn't get it because I'm a radio <laughs> oh, broadcaster. Never mind. <laughs> I can give you some radio broadcaster jokes. Oh, cool. Oh, yeah. Well, on, my last, on my very last day, I'm going to tell you, that was supposed to happen 10 years ago. On my very last day, I'm going to tell the stories nobody wants me to tell. 
or at least the people who star in the stories don't want me to tell. But, Peter, you heard Tom say yes. that veteran police officers who've been on the job for 20 years can't wait to get out because they don't have the options they have today. To a degree, I agree. Uh, there's more vigilance. There's more uh, uh, supervisors keeping tabs on the political correctness and so on. Uh, I could see that, but I've dealt. I've seen some police officers here, and they're outstanding, like dedicated to duty. And uh, they they revealed to me that there's less freedom, so to speak. Okay, so this is now. I'm talking to Peter, right? Yes, sir. So Tom. Yes, sir. Talk to Peter. Oh. You're Ontario. He's Alberta. Uh, yeah. So so it's it, you're thousands of miles apart, roughly. I mean, a couple of thousand miles apart. Or a couple of thousand kilometers apart, change. right? So, but but the situation is the same. Ten four, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think a lot of it comes from upper management. I mean, they 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 say they'll support you, and to an extent they do. But you know, everybody screws up here and there, and <laughs> if you do screw up, though, they the there is some support, but they'll also try and fry you at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to bring John in, who's a retired police officer, served for 30 years in Toronto. Right on. Hey, John, thank you for the call, sir. Hi, how are you? Good, sir. How are you doing? Good. Thank you. Thank you guys for your service. Thanks, Roy. So well, you're welcome, sir. So, John, you're listening to Tom, you're listening to Peter. When you hear the, the points they're making, do you agree? It's the same all over. It doesn't matter whether you work uh, in the States or in France or in Canada. It's about, I think, in the Western world, an unreasonable amount of, of accountability. Everybody believes in accountability that's ever been a police officer. But what's reasonable, what's unreasonable? And uh, you got to understand that police officers, well, in all settings, don't Can't deal with nice people most of the time, and they don't deal with people at their best most of the time and uh you know at certain times you have to use force uh, you may, you're paid to make split second decisions and if you're putting yourself in these positions where uh, you know we have a saying that uh, everybody's running away from a situation and a good police officer is is getting there as fast as they can <laughs> now people take their time driving to the call to the situation because why would i put myself in the middle of something where i have to make a split second decision we're not talking about shooting somebody necessarily just you put yourself <laughs> on the line and people second guess you to death it's not worth it gentlemen everybody agree uh, t- affirmative um well, let me ask you this. Uh, let me, let me, let... the subject, may I, may, may I interject? Sure. Uh, not to uh, change the, the topic. No, don't, don't change the topic, because I'm a simple guy. If you go to no, another topic, I get lost. No, I just need to add something super sure, positive. Sure, sure. In my 20 years' experience, I rub shoulders with some of the most dedicated personnel. Uh, they, they, they would, the most important thing was doing the duty. Right and and being in the service of the citizen, and that's how I felt. And I, I work with officers with the same mentality, dedication to duty and dedication to serving the citizen. Nothing else matters. So, what's the relationship between the police officer and the community and the citizen you were serving twenty oh. twenty five years ago? Was it a different relationship than it is in two thousand and seventeen? I'm. 
I know there's a difference, but I didn't feel it. When I was on the street, I walked my beat at times. Is this Peter? Is, is this Peter? Yes, sir. Okay. Just to get to know the citizens. Talked to five-year-old girls, helped an 80-year-old lady across the street. Yeah. Uh, like, I was a beat cop. Okay. And I enjoyed my, my citizens. Okay. So, Tom, John, uh, same question for you. Is the relationship different? Well, I'll go to John for a second. Is the relationship different in 2017 than it was in 19, let's say, 1997 or 1987, the relationship between the citizen and the cop? It's a lot different. I'm asking myself, second-guessing, and uh, it, it's, I, I mean, I still have a lot of friends on the job, and Fido is, uh, for certain officers, it's been around a long time, but now it's it's general mainstream because, like I said, you see your friends going down uh, for things that are minor. Level of accountability is handcuffing police officers from doing their duty. Yes. Okay, we lost we lost our, our, our caller, the one, of, one, of, one of you guys. Because... No, he's still here. No, no, we lost, we lost one of you. Oh. And, and it's because it's our phone system. I, I just want to ask you one other question, one last question. Would you advise, if you had a son or a daughter who was considering joining the police force, would you advise them to do so or not? And, John, let me start with you. Uh, maybe you do have a son or a daughter who's thought about joining the police. Well, my answer is no, and it's for the simple reason is that you cannot do the job now. You cannot do the job that you should be doing for the taxpayers. You, you, you have to walk away from things. They teach you to disengage. They teach you. It's totally different than when I joined, and, and I'll tell you, the fun is not, uh, is not there anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, not one day did I ever consider going to work as work. Now, as the other callers have said, people can't wait to get out. All right, Peter, I have one minute. What, what about you? If, if your son, who's moved in with you, if your son, maybe he did, but if your son came to you today and said, Dad, I'm gonna, I, I want to join the Calgary police or any police force in this country, what would you say to him? I wouldn't uh, block his wishes. It's his life. Would you advise him? And he's seen, like, both his parents were police officers. Okay. And his mom is still serving. And he's seen what has happened to, to the family. That might be a deterrent. Right. But if he wishes to become a policeman, I will not step in his way. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much for your calls. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Important issue. Australia had a national carbon tax until 2014, and then they said, no mas, no mas, and they got rid of it. And they got rid of, rid of it because, well, you're, you're going to hear why they got rid of it when we speak with an Australian politician at the top of the next hour. He'll be joining us from uh, from Queensland, I think it is, in uh, North Victoria, in Australia. Brad Batten, Australian member of the Victoria Legislative Assembly, shadow minister for the environment. They got rid of the carbon tax. Our prime minister has decided that we're all going to have a carbon tax even though he hasn't conducted a national study of the economic impact of a carbon tax, because as a former drama grade school teacher, he doesn't need to, because that prepares you for everything. Well, 
Fraser Institute report shows a national carbon tax and or cap-and-trade scheme is failing the economy. Kenneth Green is the uh, Senior Director of Energy and Natural Resource Studies for the Fraser Institute. He's the author of the report, Poor Implementation Undermines Carbon Tax Efficiency in Canada. And Mr. Green joins us from Calgary. Feels weird to say, Mr. Green. You know, kind uh, of feels weird to say Mr. Green because I'm Mr. Green. Well, uh, we're both green, Mr. Green. Yeah. Um, although you can call me Dr. Green if you'd like. Okay, well, let's do that. That's a lot. Of, that's a lot better. Let's do that, Dr. Green. So, I don't doc- think you're going to hear a lot of Spanish in your next segment with your Australian guests. So, I'm not sure they said no mas. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I was thinking of Roberto Duran. Um, yes. <clears throat> carbon pricing in Canada doesn't work the way the ivory tower economists envision you, you, you wrote. Explain that to us, please. That's right. Well, when they sell you on a carbon tax, they, they, they tend to say things like, um, it's going to be revenue neutral. We're going to give all the money uh, back <clears throat> that, we, that we collect on the carbon tax. And they say um, uh, that, that it won't hurt the economy because, it's, it's, uh, because we're going to make it revenue neutral. It won't hurt the economy, and that it's the most efficient way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. It's more efficient than regulations or, um, or, or other approaches to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. And we looked at the literature on, on carbon pricing and the way it's been implemented in Canada, and frankly, it fails to, to, to um, uh, build in the very structures necessary to, to make those claims uh, meaningful, right? So that in in three, in three of, out of four of them, they don't even make a, an effort to claim that their revenue until they're going to give part of the revenue back to keep some for themselves for whatever programs they like. In fact, most of the, the carbon tax collected here in Alberta will be spent by the government on the same exact programs they've been pers- pushing for 30 and 40 years: more metro, more transit, more bike paths, more efficient light bulbs, more you know low flow shower heads, things that that really <clears throat> are trivially related to greenhouse gas emission reductions. Um, but are costly. And in Ontario, you've got cap and trade where um, they're, they're sheltering major emitters by giving them uh, uh, permits and allocations of permits. Uh, and you have a um, system where the, the cost is passed on to consumers, but it's hidden. Right? So the consumer never sees it. They just find that their chicken is more expensive and that their, their cars are more expensive and maintenance is more expensive and everything just gets progressively more expensive. But individuals don't see it because it's buried in this in this um, cap-and-trade program, which is simply a hidden tax. Uh, again, it's not given back to the people uh, in full. It's just spent by the government on the same priorities they've always wanted to spend it on. So should um, should the politicians who introduce these, these carbon taxes, whether it's a carbon tax or cap-and-trade, and Ontario is involved with Quebec and California, which is an interesting um, partnership, but shouldn't they be aware of this as they launch these programs and make these promises that everything's going to work and be revenue neutral and be good for the planet? Yes, they, they should be, and they are, in fact, because we, we've, we've seen that, that they, they are willing to bend the very nature of reality to avoid, avoid admitting that they're just putting in another cap and spending pro, the trade, tax and spending program. Right. And so you had gyrations like Rachel Motley who said, well, the tax is going to be revenue neutral because the government's not going to keep it. If the government has a savings account, the government's in debt, so you're already spending more than you're taking in, so <clears throat> how can it be revenue neutral? Exactly. And Justin Trudeau said his tax will be revenue neutral because all the money taken from one province will go back to that province. But that's bizarre by the government rather than people. That's just that's just that's just as Brad as Brad Wall said to him. That just doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. I mean, the, the, on the bright side, if uh, if Brad Wall did what what Trudeau taunted him to do, it said, "Well, he just give it back to his farmers." <clears throat> if he did that, 
it actually might be an ideal carbon tax because, excuse me, one second, I'm sorry. <clears throat> it could be an ideal carbon tax because um, it, it, would, it would let people see the price of emissions and then they could decide whether they wanted to emit or whether they wanted to try to bank some of that money for a vacation in you know, Rio. Okay. Um, but, uh, but there's almost, again, very little chance that the size of the flow of money that goes to the federal government is given back to the, to the, to the provincial so government. So we have, a, we, we have about a minute left, Dr. Green. Do you have any, do you have any sense that it's going to get better as, as, as Mr. Trudeau's plan unfolds? Or is this just going to be a, a morass that will, be, that will result in more taxes uh, with a fancy name? I don't think they're going to get better, let's put it that way. I think that, uh, but, but I think that the Trump presidency changes the complete the, the economic uh, rationale for having the carbon tax uh, and will compound the damage done to Canada's economy as the U.S. moves ahead with more fracking and less greenhouse gas regulations. Uh, I think it's going to be hard times for Canada if these taxes are allowed to escalate the way they're planned. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, we'll, we'll talk again. And uh, I, I doubt that we'll be speaking Spanish with our guest from Australia. Thanks so much. Si. Good talking thank to you. you. Bye-bye. See. Si. Dr. Kenneth Green, Sense of Humor, from uh, Fraser Institute. In Canada, we have a prime minister who has declared that to expect Canadian values to be uh, adhered to and, and to be expressly adhered to and to be asked Canadian values questions when you come into the country as either a landed immigrant or a, or a visitor, our prime minister has said that that is intolerable and that it's un-Canadian and it's inappropriate. Now, not everybody agrees with Prime Minister Trudeau, but certainly that's been his position and it's been the position of some conservative leadership candidates to what Kelly Leach proposed. And it was Dr. Leach's proposal for the Canadian values. As you know, we've spoken to her on a number of occasions about this. Well, in Australia, that's the law. If you wish to become an Australian citizen, you're going to have to demonstrably prove that you understand and value and support Australian values. In Canada, we can't even define what our values are. That's the big argument. What's a Canadian value? Gee golly wow. Let's work on that. In Australia, it's, a, it's an expectation. It's the law if you want to become an Australian citizen. In Canada, we have, a, oh, by the way, our prime minister, you know, the glowing report, the glowing eulogy he wrote for Fidel Castro was perhaps only superseded by his admiration for Chinese dictatorship, which he spoke of glowingly in 2013 before he became the prime minister of Canada. And to make it a, uh, a complete triangle here, we also have a prime minister who boasts to the New York Times that Canada is the first post-nation state. Not in Australia. Not in Australia. Now, our prime minister is demanding that we have a national carbon tax, and by next year it has to start, and it's $10 per ton. How do you measure, how do you weigh gas? Anyway, I... Never mind. So, as of next year, it's going to be $10 per ton, and then he has this scale that's going to keep going up and up and up and up and up, but he hasn't, <laughs> he hasn't conducted a, uh, a, a, a national 
test to see what impact the national carbon tax would have on our economy. Saskatchewan Premier Brad Wall told us that. Because Mr. Trudeau doesn't need to do that kind of grunt work. He just knows it's going to be perfect. Australia in 2014 got rid of its national carbon tax. I wonder why. Well, let's find out. Joining me is Brad Batten. Mr. Batten is an Australian member of the Victorian Legislative Assembly, and he's the shadow minister for the environment in uh, the state of Victoria. He was going to be on with Michelle Rempel, Calgary Conservative MP, who has been challenging the Liberals' plans, but uh, Ms. Rempel is on the plane and she can't talk to us right now. Mr. Batten, thank you so much. You got up awfully early to talk to us. It's Monday morning, I think around 6 o'clock in Australia. Yeah, that's correct. Roy, good morning. It's uh, good to be on with speaking with you. Well, it's, it's great to talk to you. So why don't we start with, uh, let's start with the, um, with the issue of uh, the Australian values law. And if you're, a, if, you're a, if you're a newcomer to Australia and you want to become an Australian citizen, you have to wait four years. You have to demonstrably prove that you fit into Australian society. Please share with us what the rules are going to be or what they are already. Yeah, at the moment, the previous uh, system had it as two years, but we've expanded that out to four, our federal government um, with Malcolm Turnbull. And some of those changes is actually making sure you can complete a citizen's test. And when we talk about values, I, I heard you just say before, talking about the values over in Canada, our values are very important and our values are around family, uh, are around mateship. Um, we have a very strong volunteerism community over here as well. And these are the values that we want to be brought into Australia one of the biggest issues we have is around domestic violence. And domestic violence crosses many boundaries. And it's something that uh, I've I've visited Canada and I know it's a topic that is um, on the forefront of a lot of people's minds. What we're saying is when people are coming from various cultures, uh, different countries that have a uh, a little lacklustre in the way they approach domestic violence, particularly violence against women in the home, we say that's not acceptable here in Australia. So if you're going to live here, you've got to abide by our rules. You've got to abide by our laws. But we do say to you, never forget where you come from. We're a proud multicultural nation. Um, we love celebrating all different religions, all different cultures. But whilst you're living here, you've got to abide by our our laws. And that means inside your home as well as outside your home. And and do you have to uh, understand what Australian values are and be able to, uh, I don't want to suggest it's a test, but you have to, you have to ad- be willing to adhere to the Australian values as they're laid out by the government? Yeah. Some of the questions in our test will actually be along the lines of um, talking about those values and making sure that you are willing to adhere to them um, whilst out and about. We do have a very strong reminder in, in a lot of our tests which talk about don't forget the, the values of your own home, um, you make sure you live your own culture and pass that on to the next generations. But whilst you've decided to live in Australia, and, and we can never forget, and the same as, as in Canada when people want to live in Canada, it's, a, it's not a right that you can become an Australian citizen, it's a privilege. So if you want to take up that privilege, then you've got to understand that there's some obligations that go with that, and that means living by our values, ensuring the most important one at the moment we talk about is ensuring that domestic violence is something we want to reduce, and we've had a very big issue with that through our multicultural society. So we want to make sure that we stamp that out, and that's a value that's very important to us over here in Australia. Mr. Batten, isn't there also a requirement to prove that you're assimilating into Australian society? 
Yeah, there is a requirement that you're assimilating in and also part of it is a language test and the language test level will be changed which actually makes it more difficult. Now, there's been some issues raised from within, uh, particularly our Indian community I was speaking to last week or so that we're talking about the language requirements may be seen as too difficult. Um, That'll be something that they'll assess and judge as they go through. But what we're saying is if you have a family come over here and a lot of these uh, cultures where only the husband will go out and work and and a wife and children stay at home, um, there's a requirement in this saying that, no, no, we require your children to go to school. It's not an option. That's actually a requirement. Your children have to go to school and start to work within that community. We're actually saying that you also have, if you have a wife at home or a partner at home, they shouldn't be just staying at home and continuously speaking their native uh, um, language. They should be out and going into the community, whether that's in volunteering or paid work, to try and actually involve themselves in their local community. That's the kind of thing we're looking for for people who want to build a better Australia in the future. So if you want to become an Australian citizen, you have to adhere to these particular um, expectations by the government and by the people of Australia. That's correct. And when you say it's by the government, it's actually more correct to say it is by the people of Australia. Oh. When you, you see, we've seen it in history, you go back to the 50s, we had the Russians moving over to Australia, and they all went to one community, particularly around South Melbourne and Paran. Uh, we had the Vietnamese community come in uh, a bit later on, and they came in particularly around Collingwood and then went down through Springvale. What we're saying, that's, that's fine, they go into, their, into little groups, but we actually want people who are moving over here to live by our values and our structure, and that means not all going into one area, not changing everything in that one area to the beliefs and the values they had back at home they've come here because they wanted to have a change in lifestyle people aren't moving to australia because they want to stay in the countries they've come from they're getting away from something a lot of the time particularly refugee if you're coming over here as a refugee well then we're saying we actually offer you a an opportunity that you'll probably never get back in your home country then you're going to have to work within our community and within our society to make sure you can see the positive change as well has this been a controversial issue in australia uh, it, it's always had some people, I suppose, that are, have um, challenged it, um, that will continue to challenge it. Um, there's a, a particular group out there who, um, and, and a lot in the, I suppose, in the law fraternity as well, who try and say that we're going too far with a lot of this. Uh, but there's also a very strong contingent at the moment within the community, and I'd say it's larger than uh, it's the silent majority it used to be, but that is actually now becoming the noisy majority of people who are saying, what we want is when people are coming here, they understand the way we live, uh, they understand, they don't have to understand every sport, but we want them to get more involved in those community, community side activities that we have. Uh, I think people are sick of it in Australia, of people coming into, into Australia and then talking about their values and laws from back at home. Uh, I know there's always been a concern raised around the Muslim community, um, but the, however, there's some that come over here and start talking about Sharia law what our community is saying. We don't really want Sharia law here in Australia at all. If you really want Sharia law, stay back where Sharia law is. But whilst you're here, you must work within our values. Now, in Australia, they had a national carbon tax until 2014. Brad Batten is with me. He is uh, an Australian member of the Victorian Legislative Assembly, Shadow Minister for the Environment. Mr. Batten, in 2014, Australia did away with its national carbon tax. Why? Uh, We had some reviews on that carbon tax. At the time, Tony Abbott was our leader federally um, and obviously won the election uh, on the axe to tax was his his slogan during that time. The carbon tax, when it was brought in, uh, and very similar to the position you're in now with um, Justin Trudeau, there was no case studies, there was no 
groundwork done, there was no understanding how it was going to affect business, how it was going to affect families, particularly with costs and increased electricity. And then the result of that was businesses started to um, get concerned about what was going to happen with their future and how much it was going to um, cost them in the long run. The uh, centre-left parties or the left-wing parties were trying to sell it that the cost of this was just, an, you know, the big businesses were going to pay and the big businesses were going to have to um, work out ways to either save on carbon or pay out of their own pockets, a bit of a penalty for them. The reality was uh, all of us know big businesses pass on those costs and that goes down to family homes. So that was when we got involved more and more from the uh, the Liberal Party over here now, obviously people over there have to understand Liberal Party over here is a centre-right party, not a centre-left. So we actually started to focus on how that was going to affect families um, and the actual costs on that. And there was a range in how much it was going to cost, but the implementation of it was going to cost about $150 per year to a family. That was going to increase, increase quite quickly. On the same model over there with the scaling of the carbon tax, that was going to increase quite quick, quickly to over $1,000 per family estimated. So 2014, the decision is made to scrap the carbon tax because it's harming Australian business, it's harming families, and it's also causing concern uh, among the business community, and you can't move forward in business if you have concerned business leaders who are going to have to invest. If they're not comfortable with what's going to happen with our investment, they won't invest. Yeah, instability. If you've got a, a government that's or policies out there that are creating instability, you will have less and less, obviously, investment throughout your state or country. Um, I'll focus on Victoria. And we had a lot of um, investment in Victoria, particularly around aluminium smelters. Um, we obviously have coal. We still use coal power here in, in Victoria. One of our coal plants has closed recently, and that put a lot of concern back on families if you were putting carbon on those. The sad thing is uh, in Victoria, one of our state governments has gone on the loan and they've put a $250 million tax on coal, uh, which has created the closure of one of our plants down here. And we're talking about baseload energy. And if, if you haven't got baseload energy, you've got uh, more instability. And so we've got manufacturers now saying, well, if you're not giving us any security around coal, if you're not giving us any security around the cost, then why would we want to invest in your state or country? That was all started from the carbon tax. It started a message out there that they wanted to increase tax on any carbon that was uh, output. And it was something that, as we said, we, we really focused on how that was going to affect the families and started to get the case studies done on that. We just spoke with um, the uh, representative of the, um, the Fraser Institute, a think tank in this country. And he pointed out that the four provinces that have carbon taxes have really not implemented them well. And what this turned out to be is essentially just another tax on Canadians. Was the carbon tax ultimately just going to be another tax? Did it turn out to be just another tax, or did it actually help the environment? No, it definitely did turn out to be another tax. And I think from uh, from memory, I'm going off memory here, but 2014, a report came out. Carbon uh, output actually increased in Australia during the time of the carbon tax. So to say that it was actually going to reduce carbon output was a, a, a bit of a lie uh, from the government at the time. They had that was their focus going forward. In Victoria alone, just the government themselves is one of the largest providers or largest outputters of carbon. Uh, in Victoria, they've made the changes themselves. They haven't got a carbon tax, but they've been putting pressure on, on companies for carbon to reduce it and again passing on those costs. At the same time, government itself has increased its carbon output, including the Department of Environment, has had a major increase in uh, carbon outputs. So if you can't lead... Uh, by example, on reducing carbon, and then I think you're in, in, a, in a real issue there. And the reality is, Roy, uh, private enterprise are some of the best in the world at putting in new 
ideas and new technologies and they look at things to improve costs of running their business and most modern technologies like most modern cars, like most modern houses, all have a reduced carbon output. We should be putting it more pressure back onto the private enterprise to actually do it themselves and most of them are already focusing on that because they have better outcomes which is a better better on the bottom line for them. Yeah. What would happen to an Australian Prime Minister who said, I'm only going to take questions one day per week? Yeah, I noticed you saw my tweet, which is where this all started from, and uh, the reality is over here, a Prime Minister wouldn't last if they weren't going to go out and answer questions. When you have the privilege, and again, it is a privilege to lead uh, any country, if you have the privilege to be the Prime Minister, you deserve, the Victorians or the, the, the country you're leading deserves answers from you basically, in my view, whenever they want it. And that means question time. So over here, if it happened where a Prime Minister did it, as a first point of call, I would find, you'd probably find the party would actually get rid of that leader straight away because the community wouldn't accept it. But effectively, you would be sacked from your position because it would be untenable uh, to say that you're happy to take the money, you're happy to do all the uh, exciting things in the background, but then not come out and answer for the actions that you're you're implementing on those people. And I think that's a disgrace if you're not going in and answering questions in question time. I agree. Mr. Batten, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you so much for taking the time and getting up so early to talk to, talk to us. No worries. I'll look, head off for my run now. I've got plenty of time before I start work. Thank you All very right. Much, Watch Roy. out for those kangaroos. <laughs> I will do. <laughs> Dumb Canadian joke. Thank you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank There's you very a, much. All the best to you. There's a Brad uh, Batten, Australian Member of Parliament.